0: 2nd Corinthians chapter 12. We continue our study in the book of 2nd Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, as Paul continues on here through chapter 12 on to the end of this letter in defense of his ministry. As I've shared with you in the past, Paul has been engaged in a defense of his ministry since chapter 10, when He has been addressing the issue of a number of false teachers who have come into the church and they have been promoting themselves as well as undermining and questioning Paul's apostolic authority. They've been promoting themselves and likely here they've been promoting the visions and the revelations that they have received. And so Paul here in this context shares about... A vision, a revelation that he had that had not been previously revealed and supports his apostolic authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. He writes here Boasting is necessary. Though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would help us to have a reverence for your word. For it is through your word that you speak. What a blessing it is, O God, to hear your voice through the pages of Scripture that we might have divine wisdom. So, Father, open the eyes of our heart that we might see and understand and know your will. In Jesus' name, Amen. Eliza Morgan in a article published in Christian Parenting Today she writes quote my parents divorced when i was 5 my older sister younger brother and i were raised by my alcoholic mother while my mother went meant well truly she did most of my memories are of my mothering her rather than her mothering me alcohol altered her love, turning it into something that wasn't love. I remember her weaving down the hall of our ranch home in Houston, Texas, glass of scotch in hand. She would wake me at 2 a.m. just to make sure I was asleep. I would wake her up at 7 a.m. to try to get her off to work. Sure, there were good times like Christmas and birthdays when she went all out and celebrated us as children, but even those days ended up in a warped glow of alcohol. What she did right was lost in what she did wrong. When I was asked to consider leading Mops International, a vital ministry that nurtures mothers, I went straight to my knees, then to the therapist's office, how could God use me who had never been mothered to nurture other mothers? The answer came as I looked into the eyes of other moms around me and saw their needs mirroring my own. God would take my deficits and make them my offerings. He would answer his promise, quote, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace, God's undeserved merit, God's undeserved grace is what is needed if we're going to accomplish anything in our lives today. No matter what the circumstances that you may be facing today, no matter what difficulties or trials or problems that you are facing, God's grace is sufficient for us. It sustains us. It upholds us. It is His power that is shown through our weakness. And that is Paul's boast here in this particular passage. That is what Paul states in this context of defending his ministry. His boasting is reluctant at best. His desire is to make God look great. And we see in this text that his boast is what? Necessary but not profitable. But he does it. Does it humbly and he does it In order to say, you know what, in all of these things, it's not this revelation that I've been given, but it is God. And I realize that God is the one who, by His grace, has helped me through all of these things. And it was the Apostle Paul's perspective that we look at today. As he again defends his ministry against detractors who would come against him and try to undermine what he has been saying, what he has been teaching, his credibility, his authority. So we look at that humble boasting as we look at verses 1 through 6, where he says it's necessary, but it's not profitable. And he goes on to describe a vision and revelation. It's reluctant at best, as I mentioned. He doesn't want to, but his hand is being forced. Likely because these, these false teachers who had come in. They'd come in and, and they had claimed, perhaps, to have visions of their own. That was not on. Un- Common in those days, to have a secret knowledge. If you were a spiritual teacher back then, to have a vision, to have a revelation, to have some sort of secret knowledge, some supernatural revelation, something where God spoke to you, you would be, ooh, ah, I want to listen to that person. Likely that's what they were saying. You know, over the years there have been many people who have had some type of vision of heaven, heaven, have claimed to have gone to heaven and come back. They've come back and tried to make money off of that. For example, Dr. Collette, a medical doctor, worked almost 50 years with the people in the Amazon River Basin of South America. He claims to have been transported back in 1982 for five and a half days. And he says that he talked with God, the Father. He talked with the sun. He talked with the Holy Spirit. He talked with Elijah and Elijah, with Abraham, Moses, and Paul and others. He said he viewed mansions of saints and toured buildings under construction. For a hundred dollars, you can get a videotape of him detailing all of these things. He said, quote, "...everything God created upon the earth is in heaven. Horses, cats, dogs, everything He created on the earth is in heaven. In the way of animals, only those Or perfect, for example, dogs do not bark. You don't need plumbing. You can go to the banqueting house and eat all you want and no plumbing is needed, unquote. Robert Slearden, and another charismatic up-and-coming leader said that he took an extensive tour of heaven as an eight-year-old with Jesus as his personal guide. And he says, many people have asked me what Jesus looks like. He's five foot eleven to six feet tall. He's got sandy brown hair. It's not too long. It's not too short. He's a perfect man. Whatever you picture as a perfect man, that's what Jesus is. He's perfect in everything. The way he looks, talks, everything, that's the way I remember him, he says. He says, we walked a little farther. This is the most important part of my story. I saw three storage houses 500 to 600 yards from the throne room of God. They're very long and very wide. We walked inside the first as Jesus shut the front door behind us. I looked around the interior in shock. On one side of the building, there were arms, fingers, and other exterior parts of the body. Legs hung from the wall, but the scene looked natural, not weird. On the other side of the building were shelves filled with little neat packages of eyes. Green ones, brown ones, blue ones, etc., the building contained all parts of the human body that people on earth need. But they haven't realized those blessings are just waiting for them in heaven. And they're for saints and sinners alike. Unquote. Today, you know, there are websites where people can write about their out-of-body experiences and books that detail accounts of people who had near-death or out-body experiences and supposedly have gone to heaven. Last week, I spent a bit of time reading a number of them. Some people would say, well, you know what? I, I realized I was smoking pot, but I was this floating down the, the street. <laughs> now, I don't dispute that something happened to some of these people Nor do I just say that, well, all of it is, some of it, of course, you know, might be physiological. Some of it might be psychological. Some have spiritual causes. I don't dispute that something happened. But when you hear about these testimonies, what is often reported is, number one, contrary to what the scriptures describe heaven and the afterlife is like. Another problem is that oftentimes the reports are always positive. And that was one of the contentions with some of the promotion of these things, of those who have gone to heaven and come back because it doesn't seem to matter what you believe. It was always positive. And that leads people to think that, you know what, it doesn't matter. Whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a terrorist or whoever, it's always going to be positive positive. A third thing to be cautious about and to realize is that spiritual deception is a key part of Satan's toolkit. And as we see here, fourthly, the visions and the revelations that even the Apostle Paul had was not a focal point in his own life. The Apostle Paul, who had a number of visions, they were never a huge focal point in his life. And again, I'm not saying that something didn't happen to these people or these people are all fabricating things or that what they are all from a biological source, which they can be. But such things can be a source of pride. And that is what Paul states here about his own situation. We are to be people who pursue truth and the truth that is found in the Word of God. So, the pressure for Paul to put forth his own experience in order to validate his ministry was reluctant at best. And he says it's necessary, but it's not profitable. Not profitable. In fact, after, what, 14 years, he divulges this. 14 years, he hadn't written anything about it. His boasting wasn't going to be in the vision that he had. He had. What was he going to do? He was going to share it, but again, his trust wasn't going to be in that. They didn't want to make him out. He didn't want them to make him out as somebody special. He says it's not profitable. Do you know what is profitable? The Scriptures tell us what is profitable. This is unprofitable here. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says what? All what? Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof. For correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be careful, adequate, equipped for every good work. And that is the perspective, the perspective of personal experience, that it is to be always subjected to the objective word of God. If somebody has some experience, it is to be tested against the word of God. The popular thing today, though, is to what? Write a book about it, to go on a speaking tour, to publicize it, to promote it, to make some money or whatever it may be. Paul didn't want people to think of him differently. It wasn't a prominent part of his testimony. In fact, he says, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. And he puts himself even in the third person. I know a man in Christ. Why does he do that? Why does he say, well, he's talking about himself at first. And then he says, I know a man in Christ. Murray Harris in his commentary says this. There are several reasons. First, he was clearly embarrassed to have to say this at all. An activity that in and of itself did not contribute to the common good. Secondly, he, he wished to avoid suggesting he was in any sense a special kind of Christian. The initiative had been... Not been his, but God's. Verse 5 suggests the third reason. Although Paul recognized the honor involved in being the recipient of a vision, he wanted to dispel any idea that it added to his personal status or importance. Paul was humble about his boast. The Bible says that he was caught up in paradise. What is that? In the New Testament, the word paradise we find used three times. Where is paradise? When Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, He says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's one usage of it. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Paradise is equivalent to heaven. It is equivalent to heaven. It is not two different places. When Paul speaks of it here, it is used the third time here in this context. Paradise came from the Persian word meaning walled garden. And the greatest honor, you see, for a Persian king to give to one of his subjects was to invite one of his subjects to come to what? was one of the greatest places in Persia, and that was in the gardens. It was the bestowment upon the individual of a great honor to come and walk in the garden with the king as one of the king's companions. Isn't that interesting? That someday you and I will be in paradise walking In the garden of God, so to speak, being called a companion or a friend of Jesus—that's where the tree of life will be. That's where all peace will be. Someday we'll be in paradise. Paul went. He saw, and in inexpressible words which he is not permitted to speak. What did Paul hear? No one knows. We don't need to guess. We simply don't know and we leave it there. We're not permitted to talk. He wasn't permitted to speak of it and let the matter matter settle there. We don't know any more about what it was that Paul saw at this point. Paul was reluctant. Reluctant to share, but he did about his experience. And he says, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, Paul says, don't think more highly of me simply because I've had this experience. Because what I've taught and what I've said, he says, is all of God. I'm not such a special person who had this special privilege and that makes me me better than everyone else. I'm not so godly, therefore God chose me to do so. To see the paradise of God. But since He put me in a corner, He says, I'm going to tell you that I went there. I saw that. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But God gave me the privilege to see that. And the fact of the matter is, don't put your trust in someone who has a simple vision or a revelation or some unverifiable experience and go and say, ooh and ah. Put it in what they see in Him and know of what He teaches. What does the Bible say to boast about? Jeremiah 9:23 and 24. If you're going to brag about anything, if you're going to boast about anything, as the Scriptures say in Jeremiah 9, there, let not the wise man, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Right, let not the strong man boast of his strength, nor the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this what that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord, you want to be bragging about something, brag that you know God, that God is a great God who is a just God, who is a righteous God. Do you think you're smart or strong or rich? Don't take pride in any of those things. Take pride in saying, what? look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look at God's grace. Because if it weren't for God's grace, you know what? You and I would have nothing, be nothing, and not be able to do anything. Whether it's an experience or an accomplishment or some success, our boast is in God. The pride is in God. Look what God has done for me. Look what God has done by His grace. And if we don't, we become proud people. And Paul says, you know what? God gave to me a thorn in the flesh and so we humbly accept suffering because suffering and distress and difficulties are given for a purpose to keep us dependent upon god to keep us at god's feet to see ourselves as we truly are so we look at verse 7 because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations verse 7 for this reason to keep me purpose to keep me from exalting myself there was given to me a thorn in the flesh The revelation was so great, so wonderful that to keep Paul from being proud, the apostle Paul, who already suffered, as we saw last week, beatings, times without number that he lost count, stonings, shipwrecks, etc, God gave him a perpetual thorn in the flesh. Now it's been over the years there have been a lot of theories as to what this thorn in the flesh were. One commentator writes, there were suggestions that maybe the thorn was Jewish persecution or carnal temptations or epilepsy or chronic ophthalmolia, which is an eye problem. You remember at the end of his letter when he writes, look at how big my letters are because it's thought that he might have had some sort of, you know, vision problems near the end of his life or a speech impediment or some sort of recurring malady such as Malta fever. Most commentators assume it was a physical ailment like maybe a migraine or gallstones or gout or rheumatism or intestinal disorder or whatever it might be. Scolops is the word. Thorn. Could be translated as stake. Could be translated as stake. And the intensity of the suffering it caused Paul, it wasn't a small little... It wasn't a small little splinter. It was a thorn. And it's important to note that Paul acknowledges, number one, this thorn came from God. This thorn came from God. God gave it to Paul, just like Job was afflicted. But it was a messenger of Satan. It was a messenger of Satan. Remember, Satan could only go and afflict Job by permission from God. It's been been said that Satan... Is God's devil. There is nothing that Satan can do except by the permission of God. And God brings difficulties into our lives or trials. A lot of times we assume maybe that sickness or calamity couldn't ever come from God. But this is one example among many throughout the Old and New Testament in which God permits and sometimes brings intentionally into a person's life where suffering ultimately comes by the hand of God. And this was a messenger of Satan. And it's important to note that Satan, once again, he cannot do anything to anyone but God would grant to him permission. Job was a righteous man. But Satan was given permission to touch him and to afflict him. Satan belongs under the control of God and always will be under the control of God. So there's no reason to fear the devil or demons because none can do anything to you unless it is by God's permission. And as I mentioned, another aspect of this thorn, of this messenger of Satan, the vast majority of the times, this word messenger comes from the word angelos, which is the word for angels, oftentimes. More so than not, it is used and translated as the word angels. And metaphorically, in the Old Testament, sometimes it refers to opponents or enemies. Enemies as Thorns. And the torment that it caused, the fact that this opponent or thorn did not leave may suggest that this thorn in the flesh perhaps wasn't a physical ailment at all. One commentator alludes to the idea, the possibility that perhaps this messenger of Satan was perhaps a demon who was influencing the leadership of The false teachers in Corinth causing great pain to Paul. And Paul asked that what? That it would be removed and yet God had not yet done so. That's perhaps consistent with the context. That's one possibility. We really don't know because there's not as much given here. But ultimately we do know that the thorn caused great pain. That it was given by God. That it was a messenger of Satan that was not removed, and that it was to keep Paul humble. That is the purpose of much of our suffering, isn't it? Many times when we have problems in life, it is to keep us humble. It is to keep us dependent upon God. Suffering causes us to bow and to come to our knees to ask of God. Otherwise, pride would take over, wouldn't it be? We lose what we had. Why? Because we've forgotten that maybe it was a gift from God in the first place. And we go to God and pray. Whether it's our health, our possessions, or our privileges. Maybe our love has been in the wrong place for all of this time. And we no longer depend upon God. Because we think to ourselves, it's because of me. I earned that. Or I made that. Or I'm a self-made person. Or whatever it may be. And God brings something into our lives to remind us that He is here. What is the thorn in your flesh? What is the trial or the pain or the difficulty that keeps you dependent upon God? For us, it may be very much different. But God allows suffering to come that we might see ourselves as we truly are. in The truth and the light of the Word of God. And Paul's response is what we would all do. He asked of God to take it away, but God left it. To show himself through our weakness. And we see that as the third point. That Paul learned contentment even in suffering. That we learn contentment even in suffering because God's grace is sufficient. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Grace is God's gift. It is undeserved merit. Something we didn't earn. Something we don't deserve, something that we're not worthy of. The truth of the matter is everyone here has problems. No matter how perfect your family looks, no matter how perfect your kids look here on Sundays, everyone has problems because of sin in the world, and God has given us so, the grace needed to withstand, to uphold, to endure strength to endure and God has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness as first peter would tell us everything we need god has given to you to help you bear that burden to help you carry that load to find victory in your life god's grace is sufficient god's grace is sufficient to help us to love the person who is very difficult in our life God's grace is sufficient to help us when we've lost a job. God's grace is sufficient when we have pain and when we're sick or when somebody we love in our life is going through a hard time. God's grace is sufficient to help us to overcome and to uphold them. We've all been aware of athletics since we've been watching the Olympics. There's a Nike commercial. That when the commercial shows on television, you know, Advertising Nike and their swoosh. It doesn't say a word. But what it shows is a series of people with one thing in common. In all of these people, there is a scar or a nasty injury. So there's a cowboy there in this commercial with a huge scar around his eye. There's a fellow with a bulbous cauliflower ear that's huge. And another man with a horribly calloused, horribly calloused feet. And there's no explanation. Simply the Nike logo that says, just do it. And the ad has been criticized for being very incomprehensible and extreme. But the key to the commercial that's shown on TV is the background music. Joe Cocker sings, you are so beautiful. To me, you see, to the wrestler who has the ear, or to the surfer who has the shark bite, or the bull rider who's blind in one eye, injuries are beauty marks. And to their fans, these athletes are beautiful because of their scars. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Mike Foligno says, the ad's creator. In God's grace, He looks upon our lives and the scars that we have. In God's grace, he accepts us as we are when we come in repentance to him and he says you are so beautiful to me and he empowers us to overcome as an athlete continues to tr- to train to play in his special olympics and God desires to show his grace in your life and in my life for God's power is perfected in our weakness. It's not our strength, it's not our power, it's not our ability, it's not our possessions, it is the power of God that works in and through us. And that is what we are to be reminded of, as Peter says in four eleven when we when the push team left last week. It was our encouragement to them. Whoever speaks it says in chapter four eleven, to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because God's grace shines through our weakness. You see, no one is too weak. No one is too unintelligent. No one is too handicapped. No one is too old, no one is too young, no one is too poor to be used by God. But there are plenty of people who are too proud, who are too rich, who are too strong, too smart, too self-sufficient, too independent, too selfish, that all they want to do, shine for themselves and they get in the way. God desires to show both His grace and His power. My grace is sufficient for you, he says. For what? Power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses. Content with insults. Content with distresses. Content with persecutions, Content with difficulties in my life. Is that how you are? Are you content when you have problems? Content with your suffering, with your difficulties? You know, Johnny Erickson taught us. She's a quadriplegic. She dove off many years ago, a dock, and broke her neck. She leads probably one of the world's greatest ministries to handicapped. And she writes, quote... Honesty is always the best policy, especially when you're surrounded by women in a restroom during a break at a Christian women's conference. One woman putting on lipstick said, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Several women around her nodded. How do you do it? she asked as she capped her lipstick. I don't do it, I said. May I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? This is an average day. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While she makes coffee, I pray, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and my teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day, but you do. May I have yours? God, I need you desperately. So, what happens when your friend comes into the bedroom? One of them asks. I turn my head toward her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. I point to my paralyzed legs. Whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. I have learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the stronger we find Him to be. How much do we lean on God? Or does God need to? Take away our arms and our legs so that we would lean on Him. What does God need to take away from our lives? What thorn does He need to give so that we can come and realize how, what, proud we can be to say we can do it. You see, sometimes we're so tempted to think these thoughts... When it comes to giving our lives or to serving God, we say, I can't I can't uh, afford this, or I'm too old, or I'm too young, I'm not as healthy as they are, I'm not as strong, I'm not as smart. And we back off. Why? Because we look at what? We look at what we can do. We look at what we can, in our strength, are, we look at our gifts, we look at our own power, and we say, we can't do that. And the answer is right. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. But by God's grace, the question is and should be, what can God do through a person like me? What can God do that is above and beyond all that we ask or think? That is the power that works. His grace is sufficient because power is perfected in our weakness. And that's why Paul can say, you know what, I'm content therefore. I'm content when I suffer. I'm content when I have distress. I'm content when people say things about me because, you know what, it's not going to be me. It's going to be God. And when I'm weak, I am strong. We accept whatever difficulties we have. We accept whatever difficulties we have for the cause of Christ. That God might shine through our weakness. And during the darkest times, we need God. John Claypool, who is a pastor of Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville. He had a little daughter. The little daughter had leukemia. When she went into remission, everybody thought that God had healed her. But on an Easter Sunday morning, she had a recurrence. And in his book, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler, Claypool, writes about his daughter and says, Daddy, Daddy, did you talk to God about my leukemia? He said, Yes, we've been praying for you. She asked, Did you ask him how long the leukemia would last? What did God say? What do you say to your daughter when you can't help her? And the heavens are silent. A few hours later, the girl died. The following Sunday, John Claypool got up to preach. And his text was Isaiah 40 verse 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There are three stages of life, Claypool said. Sometimes we mount up on wings as an eagle and fly. We're on top of the world. And sometimes we run and we don't grow weary. We can just go through the routine. Sometimes the best we can do is to walk and not faint. And that's where I am now. I need your prayers. Like Paul, he could say, for when I am weak, I am strong. God's grace is sufficient for you no matter what life brings. God's grace is sufficient to uphold you when you don't have a job. God's grace is sufficient for you when you are ill. God's grace is sufficient for you when there's a calamity in your life because why? God shines through our weakness. God shines and His grace is sufficient because He's the one who carries you through and we can shine and testify for His glory. When we suffer for His sake, God's grace is sufficient. No matter what you're facing, no matter how emotionally disturbed you may feel, no matter what kind of trial you're in, God's grace is sufficient. For power is perfected in weakness. How bright that light shines in the darkness sometimes, doesn't it, huh? Uh, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ, it says in verse 9, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Is that our heart? To be content no matter what we go through? God's grace is sufficient for you and for me. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough when we, O oh God, realize that everything we are, all that we have, all that we have ever obtained is by Your grace. So, Father, wipe away the pride in our own heart that says, Oh Father, I did this. I don't need You. Or I... Have these things. O God, forgive us for that sin. O God, and may we, O Father, learn what it is to depend upon you, knowing that even a simple smile in the morning is by your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.